My wife was getting upset with the drafts coming through the doors. Jeff Levering called Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Everybody on your staff has done a great job. Get 0% for up to four years. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Well, remember that old Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movie where his tagline is, Do you feel lucky? Well, for people who live in the Glendale area who shop at Bayshore Town Center, you have a chance to ask yourself, do I feel lucky? If you will remember, about two and a half weeks ago, February 23rd, there was the sudden collapse of a portion of that parking structure on Silver Spring that's between like the Kohl's Shopping Center and um, Trader Joe's. And we've all seen the, the video of this. Apparently what happened is the... I mean, the theory is that they'd had about an inch and a half of snow, an inch and a half of snow, and that the plows had piled that up in one area, and the weight of the snow caused the portion of the third floor to collapse, which took out the second floor, which ended up on the first floor. And I'm sure you've all seen the dramatic video. There's a car that actually just pulled in literally seconds before the parking garage collapsed. Um, The um, amazing thing, and it is an amazing thing, is that no one was hurt and that actually only two cars were crushed. So that this is it's an absolute and total miracle that all this stuff happened and that you didn't have, you know, major injuries. It's been a huge inconvenience because people were not able to get their vehicles out because if you were on the second or the third floor, the ramp was gone. So what happened is they had to bring in engineers and they had to design a second floor ramp and then they had to hoist the cars on the third floor off. So I think everybody has now been reunited with their cars, but it's it's not a good situation, right? And the the ramp, the portion that collapsed, has still collapsed. So why do I bring this up? Here's the story. Bayshore reopens a section of the first level of the collapsed parking garage. Bayshore has now reopened a section of the first level of the Silver Spring parking garage that collapsed on February 23rd. The unaffected part of the garage was open for tenant and guest parking as of Wednesday afternoon. As of March 6th, engineers confirmed that unaffected parts of the garage were structurally sound and they could work on repairing the damage in a contained area of the partial collapse. Okay, so on a day... (coughs) The day before, we're getting a prediction that we're going to get four, five, six, maybe even more inches of snow. Now, keep in mind the structure. It collapsed after a snowfall of only a couple inches, admittedly heavy, wet snow. But this is supposed to be heavy, wet snow. Now, the engineers are saying, no problem. Go ahead. Park your car in the first level of that structure. All I'm saying is I'm channeling that old Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movie of of do you feel lucky? I'm sure the engineers know what they're talking about, but on a day where we're predicted to get multiple inches of snow, I think I would at least be a little bit reluctant to put my car in the first level of that structure 
just hoping that whatever is going to happen on the third floor, the snow doesn't get to such a weight that suddenly you have a collapse of that that takes out the second floor that then takes out your car or people if you're getting out of the car. So the Bayshore parking garage that collapsed, well, the unaffected part, they're starting to reopen it. Whether you choose to park there or not is up to you. And I think maybe the question you should be asking yourself is, how lucky do I feel about this? Just saying. All right, let us get started. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. A lot of lot of hand-wringing and gnashing of the teeth over um, State Representative Robin Voss, who is the Assembly Republican leader, saying that the Tony Evers' proposal to just essentially write the Brewers a check for $290 million, that that's, that's pretty much dead in the water. And I, I think, reading between the lines, what Voss is saying is that, there, look, there, there's people in the legislature, while a bailout or help of the Brewers is controversial there's ways you want to get it done but what tony evers is talking about is not necessarily the way to do it now hear me out here because everybody and look i i'm a baseball fan i i i have my own you know personal 20 game package to see the brewers i want to see the brewers stay and i'm confident that the brewers are going to stay but you know evers is approach and i just sent out a tweet on this i, I think it's it's essentially, if you believe some analysts, it, it's kind of selling the taxpayers down the river. Bruce Murphy, who writes um, for Urban Milwaukee, which is a local website, and, and Murphy's been around forever writing various stories about local government and things like that. He had a piece up about a week ago or so, and I've, I've linked to it actually two weeks ago, and it raises questions that I don't hear anybody else discussing. When it comes to some people who apparently think that we should blindly go along with Evers' plan to run to give the Brewers a check for two hundred and ninety million, I've got a link to it. But I want to share with you a portion of that story and some of the questions it raised, and then we'll we'll talk about this. So this is what Murphy writes. And again, I've, I've got a link to this. In twenty nineteen, the the government entity. The, the stadium board, the Southeast Wisconsin Professional Baseball Park District, they hired a company to do a study of all the needs, the replacement needs for the stadium and equipment until the year 240. Okay, this is when they were talking about 2040. This is when they were talking about you know, ending and sunsetting the stadium tax. So they wanted to know, okay, you know, what? how much money are we going to need for 20 more years of operation? So the company came in, they, they did a study, and they looked at full replacement of all the seats, replacing two 800-ton chillers and air handling equipment, replacing the flat portion of the ballpark, replacing the ribbon board, replacing the out-of-town scoreboards, um, talking about improved sound system, maintenance and upgrades on the elevators, parking lot, roadway improvements. The list goes on and on. And the numbers that they came out with in 2019, they concluded that $71.7 million would cover all the costs, not $200 million, not $290 million, not $370 million, $70 million. And they also said, okay, but, you know, you're going to have inflation, stuff costs more, so let's build in like an extra 
10 to 14 million to allow for unforeseen or unexpected conditions and inflation. So you, you get a number of $85 million that the, the stadium board, that's what their study said. And, you know, they presented this. Back at the time, um, the Brewers didn't say anything about this at all. So that's the number that they were working with. All right, so what the Brewers do in 2021 or so, they they do their own study. And um, they hire a consultant. And the consultant comes out and says, well, the price of this really it, it's not going to be 85 million instead it's going to be a couple hundred million 428 million dollars which is a heck of a difference between 80 million so then what does evers do evers goes out and hires a private consultant to analyze the study the brewers did the consultant they hired is this outfit that it's an it says trusted by the owners, the industry's leading owners representative and strategic management consulting firm for public private sports and entertainment facility owners and operations. So we don't have this analyzed by the, non- the legislative fiscal bureau or the legislative audit bureau. They go out and they hire this outfit that essentially works with owners to come out with, you know, how, how much they think things are going to cost. And so this group that Evers has hired, which is an owner's group, comes out and they say, well, it might be $600 million. So what the stadium board has studied and a couple years ago has said was like going to be, even with inflation, $85 million, has now ballooned to somewhere, you know, north of 500 or $600 million dollars which is, again, where where does this number come from? But then what Murphy goes on to write is even at the, even at the number that Evers throws out, $290 million plus another 70-some million that the stadium district board already has, he writes it's an historically high price tag to keep the Brewers in Milwaukee for 13 years until their current, until 2043. Um, what they say is, at $22.3 million a year, this would be the biggest per year Major League Baseball lease subsidy in history. And then Murphy goes on to write, but the deal is even worse than that sounds. Evers has agreed to tear up the current lease for the Brewers Stadium, under which the team was responsible for paying 36% of the stadium's maintenance and repair costs. Evers's proposal appears to leave the taxpayers paying everything, which might help explain why the numbers are so high. Now, I think that there is a value to having Major League Baseball in Milwaukee. I think that the upgrades to American world-class facility are, are, are appropriate. But the deal that Evers is proposing stinks to high heaven. And nobody is asking, you know, these questions. Why has the estimate of costs, why in the space of just a couple years, has it gone from 80 million or 85 million to four, five, six hundred million dollars? You know, what's happening? What's going on with the idea that the brewers, in exchange for getting all this money, are only going to extend the lease an extra 13 years? These are all the questions that need to be asked, and unfortunately, nobody is asking them. It's one of the reasons why I think 
that at some point in time, like I say, a deal is going to get done, and I think a deal should get done, but, 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 just to blindly sign off on Tony Evers wanting to take $290 million of taxpayer money and essentially give it to the brewers without really a deep dive as to what's going on would be foolish. 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. See, to me... And this is what is getting lost in this rush to throw money at stuff. It's not, do we want the brewers to stay? I think the answer to that is is yes. Um, but the question is, how is the best way to do that? And where do these numbers come from? And it appears by all indications that, that Tony Evers has decided to toss all objectivity to the wind, and he's decided to essentially go into whatever the Brewers' wish list might be without really any sort of objective analysis. Now, one of our texters says, well, I I think a study that you do three or four years ago that says $80 million is, is obsolete because of increased costs. Okay, but but that we we go from eighty million to four hundred million over the space of two years. I'm sorry, I do not buy that. And at some point in time, I think somebody needs to start looking out for the taxpayers. On top of that, it's it's what else is Evers doing with the lease? Is he reducing the uh, eliminating the brewers' ability to or requirement that they have to you know pay up their portion for the upkeep? You want to get it done, but just saying, okay, we're going to write this check. And by the way, if we write this check and they agree to extend their lease for another 13 years, that will be the largest subsidy in Major League Baseball that is given to a team. Well, maybe what you want to do is say, okay, well, you know, if we're going to make this commitment, whatever the appropriate dollar amount is, then we we want more than 13 years. It really looks to me like Tony Evers is giving away the store. Jeff, I want to be a consultant. Sounds like quite a racket. Well, it certainly is that. Jeff, I wish I could ask the taxpayers of Wisconsin to foot the bill Every time I need to make repairs, upgrades on my home, can we stop giving millions of dollars to millionaires? Time for those making all the money off of these profitable sports teams to invest their own money in the process. Another, And we're getting a number of texts like this. Jeff, why should my tax dollars go to maintain a private business? It only favors Milwaukee, not the rest of the state where the tax money is coming from. And then the, the text goes on. That, that That is one of the political issues that is out there. Now, again, I think the brewers benefit the region and benefit the state. But it's political heavy lifting because there are a lot of politicians, Republicans and Democrats, outstate who don't whose constituents don't understand or don't necessarily agree with the huge economic impact the argument is hey i live in marinette or i live in superior whatever i don't get any benefit from the the brewers now i i disagree with that but that's why if we are talking about massive taxpayers' subsidies for this, there needs to be real, honest scrutiny and a real sincere evaluation of what is the appropriate dollar amount, not just, well, you know, I've decided that I don't want to have to go through the legislature, so I'm just going to sign on with the owners and I'm going to give people with, you know, whatever they want. Um Let's see, 855-616-1620. Jeff, we've already been taxed via the sales tax on the stadium. Now we're looking to be taxed again on the same stadium. I I don't end up thinking so. 
Um, Jeff, so the Brewers organization can put in X-Golf and redo the restaurant that used to be Friday's, both entertainment areas, but can't repair their basic anim- and and amenities like seats and cracking concrete and roof issues. Well, okay, in fairness, you have to understand, the Brewers don't own the stadium. The Brewers are tenants in the stadium. The stadium is owned by by the public. So it's just like, you know, any renter, what would the obligations be? Jeff, only an idiot would not question the increased difference. Even clearly does not have people he works for in the best interest uh, uh, at heart. Well, that's all I'm saying. That you know what happens? How does it go in 2019? From we can take care of all of this for 80 to 85 million, and now we're told, well, it's got to be at least 350 million and maybe more. And even accounting for increased costs and supply chain stuff. That's a pretty darn dramatic increase. If you were told, you know, three or four years ago that you could, I don't know, build build a house for $500,000, and now you're told, well, it's three years later, and that $500,000 house is going to cost $3 million, my guess is you're going to be saying, wait a second, you know, here. Jeff, I'd like to see the Brewers stay, and I believe there's a better compromise between state and local governments to achieve this. Yes, And that is my only point. So for the people out there that are doing the hand-wringing and are saying, well, how dare Robin Voss say this is dead on arrival? It's because the Evers proposal should be dead on arrival, which isn't saying that there's not stuff that we can do to try to make sure the stadium gets upgraded. But to me, it's, number one, got to be a much more reasonable number or at least has to have a lot more backing for where the numbers come from. Secondly, it's got to involve more than just a 13-year extension on the lease. And then there's a lot of other stuff as well. But at this moment, just to say, hey, let's blindly follow what Evers wants to do would be, what was the word one of our textures used? Oh, yeah, idiotic. So, very glad to have you with us as we discuss stuff right before the big snowfall that's coming. Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now. There might be snow on the way, but trust me, soon it's going to be warming up and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank. And this week we are brought to you by Wisconsin Home Guys. Sell your home in any condition. Get started now at WisconsinHomeGuys.com. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. All right, so the 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 dead-on-arrival budget that, that Tony Evers submitted was sort of a wish list for all sorts of programs, most of which is, is never going to happen. But, you know, buried, I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So there are things in the budget that I think at least – merit conversation if you are a regular listener of this program you know that because of my background one of the issues we talk about on a regular basis is is crime matter of fact we debuted a new feature yesterday that we'll be bringing back several times a week we call it tpt which is tomorrow's prisoners today highlighting the out of control crime that is going on in the, the region well my solution And look, I'm not one of these guys that I I appreciate the whole idea of root causes. And if we can figure out ways of early intervention to convince that 15-year-old kid that you shouldn't take a gun and stick it in somebody's head and and carjack them, I'm all in favor of, of doing that. But I'm also a realist. And I believe that what happens is once that kid 
makes that decision to steal the car. There, there needs to be accountability. Once the convicted felon who's out on bail gets caught leading the cops on a high-speed chase and is found with, with guns, there needs to be consequences. And those consequences mean you've got to get them off the street. Number one, you've got to get them off the street to punish them. Number two, you've got to get them off the street to send a message to, message to other I don't know felons that are out there that if they carry guns, there's going to be consequences. And and number three, we need to protect society. Right now, it is like Escape from New York, the movie that is, on the mean streets of Milwaukee. And it's not necessarily unique to Milwaukee. You can say that on urban areas. But as we talk about regularly, you, you take your life into your own hands as you're driving your car through intersections because you never know when it's going to be the 19-year-old kids with guns and dope in the stolen car leading the cops on a high-speed chase and blowing through the intersection and hitting you. That's just the reality. There needs to be consequences for bad behavior. And one of the consequences is getting people off the street. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means you need more prison space. The the governor, his commitment for reasons that pass understanding, of course, has been that he wants to reduce the number of people in prison by 50%. That is a noble goal. But it is completely and totally out of touch with what is going on in the state of Wisconsin in general and in southeastern Wisconsin in particular. I mean, it it might be high minded and things like that. But the truth is, right now, we need more prisons and we need more people being sent to prison. It's one of the reasons why, as we have talked about on multiple occasions, this this thing that they're doing, looking to build the 32 bed juvenile correctional facility, the detention place off of uh, Good Hope at 76th row, 76th, at a price tag that's already pretty much doubled, it's going to be 32 beds. That is insane. It is absolutely insane. It will be filled the, the, the day that they cut the ribbon. You need a facility, given all the juvenile crime that's going out on it, that is at least four times as large, if not more so. So you you need to make that commitment, and you need to say, okay, we're not going to build a juvenile correctional facility that's too small the minute you open the doors. But the other problem that is out there is the fact that you need to have people who staff these facilities, right? That's just the reality. You need to have guards. And one of the things that has been going on in Wisconsin for a number of years is the fact that they they can't get people to work as prison guards. The numbers I have right now is currently in Wisconsin, more than 33% of the correctional officer jobs are unfilled. So, I mean, that's a vacancy rate. About a third of the jobs are going vacant. And one of the concerns is that this has become a a crisis. Now, part of the problem is, who wants to work in a prison? I mean, of all the different jobs that you could have or handle, you know, working in a prison or a juvenile correctional facility where you're dealing with dangerous people who are not happy to be where they are, it's just a nightmare. Um, In addition... There are the pay levels that are there. Right now, the starting pay for a correctional officer in the state of Wisconsin is around 20 bucks an hour. 
Now, you get the other benefits and things like that, but it's around 20 bucks an hour, and it, it goes up from there. As part of his budget, Evers is proposing increasing the hourly rate from about 20 bucks. He wants to take it up to $33 an hour. And I say the starting thing is 20 bucks. There's also been um, federal... There's been some federal aid as part of the pandemic, which has increased the salary about $4 an hour. So let's, let's say starting, you get 24 bucks an hour. Evers wants to take it to $33 an hour. Some Republicans in the legislature are upset with this. They say, hey, look, 33 bucks just isn't, it's not a realistic number. And the governor's created problems because, you know, we think maybe we should raise it like seven bucks an hour. But now the word is out that it's going to be $33 an hour and it's going to make it very, very difficult to get a deal done. But the reality is, Evers is saying we need to substantially increase the wages for correctional officers. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I don't know if 33 bucks is the right amount, $33 an hour, but I do know that what we're doing now, they're not paying the guards enough to get people who are willing to do this job. And it's a job that has to be done. So maybe this is a case where, again, I don't, 13 bucks an hour raise seems like an awful lot to me, but I think there needs to be, whatever that number is, a substantial raise because, I mean, candidly, it's a thankless job and we've got to pay more. And as a taxpayer, I want to pay more because I want the prisons to be properly staffed because until we can figure out a way to deal with root causes and stop people from committing crimes, I want people in jail protecting the rest of us. 855-616-1620, a raise for prison guards. What do you think? 855-616-1620. Jeff, I work security, and some of the guards that I, guys that I work with are ex-prison guards. Their biggest complaint after the danger factor is the brutal overtime, which is which is mandatory, right? That that's an issue. But part of that that overtime problem is the fact that you you have to you have to have prisons that are staffed, right? And if there if there's a, a vacancy rate of thirty three percent, meaning your staffing level is only sixty five percent, that means that just by its nature, overtime is going to be required, and it does put these brutal stresses on people. So it's why. I think whether it's a massive increase of 13 bucks an hour or whether it's something more moderate, but then you couple it with some other things, you got to figure out ways to attract more people to do what is admittedly a very thankless job that I would have no interest in doing myself. Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, so sure. I actually did that job. Uh, I worked at a facility there downtown um, uh, for about a year. Um, and when I did it, it, it wasn't even 20 bucks an hour. But uh, the, the two things that were overwhelming, one, the pay just wasn't enough, number one. Uh, number two, obviously, the forced overtime, it, got, it just got grueling. Being, and you, you're forced because they don't have enough you know, manpower. Right. you got to stay. Um, and being forced to work double shifts you know, five days in a row. Um, it's just it's brutal. And then couple that with another perspective I want you to consider. I get that people don't want prisons to be country clubs, but the harsh conditions that you're forcing onto the prisoners, the officers have to deal with that. So the worse you make it on there, it's just, it just makes it even more difficult to do the job because you got to deal with these people that are in these conditions. I'm not saying baby them, but no. you get what I'm no, saying. That's another thing to consider. 
Um, no, I, I those. Go ahead. No, no, I know. I, I get it. You're. I mean, it, it's not like you're. You're coming to work every day saying, hey, I'm really looking forward to, you know, dealing with, <laughs> you know, de- dealing with the people I'm going to have to interact with. Hey, this is great. I get to I get to come to work and I get to talk to wonderful guys like Lamar who call in the show. No, you're like, huh, I got to deal with you know, these people who are behind bars and who aren't happy to be there. I get it completely. Right. And the worse you're making on them, the worse they making on the guards. It's just like, oh, God, it's, it's a fight. And with at that pay, it's just like, Mm-mm, can't do it. So. Got it. No, thanks to caller. Thanks for calling, Laura. I appreciate. It. Now, and again, I, I don't know what the sweet spot is. And some some of the Republicans in the legislature say the governor the governor has hurt himself by again by throwing out this really big number and creating this expectation. But I, I think you have to figure out what the sweet spot is, Jeff. I'm a retired deputy. Over the years, I've met with many many correctional officers. I can't even imagine working in the environment that they do. They easily deserve thirty or forty bucks an hour and great benefits to be doing what they're doing. If they pay well, they will also get good quality and honest employees, and probably save money on the other end from lawsuits and such that occur when correctional officers go bad. Rick in Wapan. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Rick. Can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. We got you. All right. I'm a retired corrections officer. I worked 27 and a half years. When Act 10 came along, everybody was celebrating the fact that they disbanded the union and stuff like that. And for 20 years, I was a supervisor, so I wasn't a union member. But I can tell you the fact that they started charging 250 or $300 a month for the health insurance for each employee. And when I started with the state, I didn't pay anything for my health insurance. And my health insurance was beautiful. And after Act 10, I was paying $250 a month or $350 a month. And I had co-insurances and deductibles. If you want to maintain your ability to control your costs, you have to give an excellent benefit package. You don't have to make $33 an hour starting wage. That's ridiculous. $20, $22 an hour starting wage, and you give a great benefit package, and then you develop your people from there. When I was working there up until the last five or six years, there wasn't a huge staffing issue. So you think rather than talk about the, the money up front, you think better benefits would, would help you it would help you get closer to, a, to, to full staffing? Absolutely. If you have an excellent benefit package where you have the old-fashioned great insurance where people knew what their costs were going to be, they could establish their budget, they could live within their budget. And I took one in 1990, I took a $2 an hour rate or $2 an hour cut in wages to go to work for the state because the health insurance was so fantastic. Now it's marginal at best. Got it. Thanks for the call, Rick. I appreciate it. Look, I, I, I don't claim to have all, all the answers. And, and if that's, and if that's what it takes, I, I, I'm open to this and, and maybe Rick makes sense. Maybe it is, Maybe if you've got the the benefit package that's out there, and I, I don't know if you can go back to the like the the free being taxpayer paid for complete insurance, but but maybe that's an even less expensive way to do it. All I know is that there is a crisis, and I don't I don't throw that word around lightly, but there is a crisis, and to me, first of all, the crisis is the crime crisis, and. 
if you're going to do what I suggest we do, which is mandatory minimum penalties, stop mollycoddling criminals, stop giving people chance after chance after chance, and if nothing else, protect the rest of us by getting people off the streets. If nothing else, you need to have that commitment to facilities, and that means you need to figure out what you've got to do to get correctional officers in. Um, and if it's if it's a seven dollar raise and as Rick is talking about better benefits, okay, I, I'm open to that. But again, this needs to be part of the conversation. How do you really get people to do a job which is ultimately, you know, thankless? Jeff, society needs correctional officers if they want to remain safe and keep those that are behind bars behind bars. Honestly, it has to be one of the worst jobs to do out there when you're putting your own life on the line with every step you take inside those institutions. I honestly believe that starting wage for any correctional worker has to start at around 45 bucks an hour. Don't know how practical that is, but it's it's true. I, in another life, at one point in time, somebody said to me, um, would you ever have any interest in heading the Department of Corrections? I think uh, Kevin Carr, who I used to work with when he was in the Sheriff's Department, does that now. And I remember saying at the time, no. And it wasn't like they offered me a job or anything. It was just like this conversation. Was, no, because, I mean, w- working in corrections is a thankless job. You know, it's like, hey, the phone rings and people rarely call you up to tell you you're doing a great job. They call you up to say, oh, we've got a prison riot or we've got this huge guard shortage or we've had an escape or we've got all that stuff. And I can, I, I concluded a lot long time ago that life is too short to deal with that. So I have the highest respect for people like Rick who devote their careers to doing this. I'm just saying that we've got a crisis right now and we've got to figure out a way to deal with this. And this is one where I I think Tony Evers does need to get together with the legislature and we have to say, what do we have to do to attract and retain people to do a job that most of us would never, ever, ever consider doing on our own? Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hey, something new to tell you about. For the first time ever, you can catch the Jeff Wagner Show anywhere that you get your podcast. That means Apple Podcasts. It means Spotify. And, of course, we're still on WTMJ.com and the WTMJ mobile app. Matter of fact, I was at a party last night. People were asking me about this. Yep, anywhere podcasts are offered, you can catch my show, and you can catch up on all our past segments every hour, commercial-free, ready when you want it. Rate, subscribe, and and you'll be caught up on everything that it is that we are doing. Okay. The city of Milwaukee, back in the 1960s, so they do the census every 10 years. In 1960, the population of the city of Milwaukee was 741,000 residents. At the time, we rated, um, we were number 11 in the country um, as far as as size. Um, since then, it has been declining and declining and declining. And um, right now, according to the 2020 census, the population has gone down to 577,000 people. Now, the mayor objects and says it's been slightly miscounted and they should increase it a little bit. I I don't know if they're going to do that or not. But the bottom line is from 1960 to 2020, the population has dropped about 
well, in the neighborhood of like 160,000 people, give or take, and the size of the city has decreased dramatically. Now, that is, there's a lot of factors that are going on in that, including the fact that in, in 1960, we still had lots and lots of factories. You know, you had the breweries that were operating, you had the big factories, and a lot of those jobs have disappeared, and the reality is that they're, they're not coming, they're not coming back. But the mayor is saying, look, here's what I want to do. I, I, I don't, I'm not satisfied at seeing this population drop. I want us to, to start increasing the population of the city of Milwaukee. And on top of that, I think we should have goals like let's see if we can get it to a million. You know, let's see if we can essentially, you know, almost double the population of the city over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever that might be. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. How reasonable is it to expect that in an urban area in the upper Midwest, we can seriously turn around this massive population drop? And and let's even if if a million is, is just crazy talk. What about is there things that can be done to stop the ongoing decline? And what does that need to be? And let's be real here. Uh, people you know, travel with weather, and f- weather is a huge factor for you know, lots of people, and you're never going to do anything about the, the weather. You're never going to be able to avoid major snowstorms you know, in, mid- in mid-March or you know, cold that comes in in December and in January and in February and in March. So you're always going to be fighting the weather. But in order to turn around the population decline that's been going on in the city, what seriously needs to be done? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Or is it realistic at all? Now, but I don't, I just, I don't want to dismiss this and just say, well, there, there's no way that the city of Milwaukee can ever reduce its population decline and it's going to continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller. I think that's defeatist talk. At the same time, I think there needs to be a reality check and a real honest conversation about why it is that the population in the city has been declining. And it's not just weather, and it's not just the erosion of the industrial base with the closing of the factories. That's a factor, but I think there's more stuff going on. What's what, is we, what do we need to see happen for the population decline to turn around? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, let's tee this up. What If the mayor is serious about trying to stop the ongoing population decline that you've seen in the city of Milwaukee, realistically, what needs to happen? Okay, the, the weather is not going to get better. The Journal Sentinel has some piece where they say, well, you know, maybe climate change can reverse that. Okay, you know, get, get, give me a break. You, you know, maybe there's climate change. You know, maybe it's going to get gradually a little bit warmer, but people are going to want warm weather. They're, they're going to go to Florida. They're going to go to Arizona. They're going to go to warm weather. And the fact that maybe you get, I don't know, an extra degree or two that's not going to make any difference the, the weather is not going to change um 855-616-1620 what needs to happen let's start with mike in fond du lac mike you're on wtmj good afternoon 
Hey, Jeff, thanks for the question. Um, why do I want to come to Milwaukee so I can get my car jacked? I'm not interested, you know? If we don't start clamping down on crime, you want to make Milwaukee the most secure, safest city in the country, then you got a shot. But until you deal with the crime and believe in all this woke crap that they're trying to push down our throats, nothing's going to happen. Mike, thanks for the call. I, I, I mean, let me, let me say, you know, if I were listing my, my top objectives and the things that you need to do, and maybe it's not surprise, it's surprise because you know the perspective I come at these things from, but yeah, number one is you've got to crack down on crime. That, that if you are trying to convince people to move to an area, you need to have people feel like they are safe. And the reality is there's a lot of areas of the city of Milwaukee that just flat out are not safe. And you might say, well, okay, you can get some people to work at jobs or things like that. But the bottom line is if you're, you're, you're not going to buy a house in a neighborhood where you're afraid that there's a drug house on the street and you're going to be trapped as a prisoner in there. You're not going to buy a house in an area where you're afraid that, hey, I can suddenly get caught in a crossfire of of bullets. You're simply not going to do that. And from an investment perspective, if we say, okay, we need jobs, you know, we need good jobs and things like that, you're, as a business person, not going to invest your money in taking risks and saying, okay, I'm going to put up, um, I'm going to, I, I want to start a store or I want to start a business, but I'm going to do it in an area where I'm afraid that my employees aren't going to feel safe or they're not going to want to get traveled, travel to, or I'm going to, if it's a retail business, I'm afraid I'm going to put that retail business in and then we're going to get robbed. As a sidelight, just a, a side issue, Portland, Oregon, the city, which has become a complete and total hot mess due to out-of-control crime, Walmart has completely pulled out of the city of Portland. Now, they have, they still have some Walmart stores in the metropolitan area, but they've pulled out of the city. And while they're not completely acknowledging it, the reason is the same reason they pulled out of the Walmart on, what, 103rd and Silver Spring. It's because of crime. That's what's going on. They're losing too much to shoplifters, et cetera, et cetera. So they're doing it. So I agree completely. Number one, you got to deal with crime. Clark in Germantown. Clark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hello, Jeff. Good talking to you. Thanks so, for calling. I live in Milwaukee. Uh, you bet. I live in Milwaukee, and it's a tax hell in Milwaukee. Everything you look at is taxed. We have taxed on sewer. We don't even have sewer on our road. We're taxed for water. We don't have water on our road. We are taxed wheel tax. We got a wheel tax. We have two wheel taxes on on the, right. on, the on our cars, which costs us right. thirty dollars, sixty dollars per car. And then your per diem. I mean, I think we're at twenty eight dollars per diem. I mean, you look at Germantown. You look at Menominee Falls. You look at all your neighboring uh, community. They're down at eighteen twenty dollars uh, 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 per thousand, mm-hmm. and we are at. I think it's twenty six, twenty eight. I mean, we're just ridiculous, ridiculously high tax in Milwaukee. I, I, I no wonder we're losing people. They don't want to pay all these taxes. It's ridiculous, and they still don't have enough money. We still don't have enough money in Milwaukee. Just right, ridiculous. Clark. Th- thanks for the call. And you know, and I, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I appreciate what you're saying about 
about Milwaukee. But on, on, I mean, but that's part of the larger problem that Wisconsin has with losing people, particularly losing young people, is that, that the whole situation with taxes and, and nobody is willing to confront that. Nobody is willing to consider, OK, maybe we want a flat tax. Nobody's willing to consider maybe, for example, to keep retired people in the state as opposed to moving to low tax states or no tax states where the weather is bad, where the weather is better. Maybe we want to do things like that. And that's one of the frustrations. So I, I agree. I think you've got to try to figure out what you're going to do with the tax situation that's that's out there as well. So crime, taxes, there's something else that's a big one. Um, oh, here's one of our texters that makes that point. Good, safe schools where you can actually learn something. That's why families leave, to which I say a- amen, because here's part of the problem as well. I, and I, I understand, I don't want to turn this into a bash MPS or, or what's wrong with MPS, but let's face it. There's a lot of MPS schools that, for whatever reason, are failing schools, and, and I'm not we, we can argue whether or not it's the teachers. We can argue about whether it's the parents. We can argue about whether it's the administrators. But you need a solid school system in order to attract people. You know, you might be able to get young people, for example, who are excited about living downtown. And look, we've got these these great these companies that are you know developing in downtown, and we've got this great area. People can live in the condos, and they can do all this sort of stuff, and they can walk to the game. I I, I get it. But that's that's only going to take you so far because what happens is after you get the, the younger people, even if you can find those jobs that attract the college graduates, and so they come here, they work for a couple years, then what happens? Well, they, they meet somebody, they get married, they want to start a family, and what are some of the considerations that they start having once they do that? Well, okay, you, you want good schools. That, that's it. You, you want good, safe schools for your kids. Jeff, for us, it's about safety. Our daughter is applying to college, and we said no way, even though she's straight A's and could easily get into UWM or Marquette. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, good afternoon. Hi there. Um, I know you want to talk about crime and taxes and bad MPS, but there's another dimension to this. Did you read Kathleen Gallagher's article today? She's a business reporter for the Journal. I did. I did. Okay. I'd like to talk about that because I really think that Milwaukee and Wisconsin, the whole state, has in so many ways over the years dropped the ball because we have this either. What do you got going? What do you got going on behind you, Lucy? <laughs> it's, um, I'm, I'm hearing I, police I, I'm sirens. I'm on the street in ambulance. <laughs> okay, ambulance. Okay, good. I I want to make sure you weren't getting pulled over for something else. <laughs> okay, good okay. enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. But the business development and visionaries that like business and want business here, I think Mayor Johnson's done a great job. I don't know what he did to get Northwestern Mutual to move downtown, but kudos to him. But we need a better state and local strategy and to get businesses here. I don't really disagree with you about um, a better way of dealing with some of the criminal issues, but I don't want to concentrate just on that because I think there's more to it. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, obviously, business development is is a huge factor, and 
that that's why it is going to be interesting to see downtown right now is going through it fairly it's going through a, a bit of a it's going to forget forget bit of a renaissance it's going through you know a, a renaissance you have you have right height that that's moving their facilities from brown deer there and you have fiserv and you have um milwaukee tool and lucy was just talking about northwestern mutual and, you, and and that's bringing a critical mass of people into the downtown area the problem is that the maybe that maybe again like i was saying earlier maybe the urban environment is hip and happening and people like hey that's cool i want to live close to where i can work and i want to be able to walk and things like that and and that's fine to a point but it, it doesn't it doesn't sustain itself because sooner or later those workers as they get older they're going to they're going to be more sensitive to crime when they're raised families and schools and things like that so to me i i am I'm all in favor of trying to figure out a way to, you know, bring people, you know, in and get the businesses and get the development. It's it's one of the things, candidly, and I understand that that Foxconn is still so controversial. I, I'm just I continue to be. It's really just unfortunate that you know Foxconn didn't develop like a lot of people hoped that it was going to. And, you know, it was always I was always kind of cringing because there were some people out there that because it was a, a Scott Walker initiative and things like that, they were rooting for it to fail or not to develop to its fullest extent. And that was that was always unfortunate to me because, you know, if, if Foxconn could have fulfilled you know, all the different goals that lots of people had, it, it would have been exactly that sort of business incubator that she was talking about. So I, I think it's a lot of challenges. I, I do think that you start with concrete proposals to try to figure out how you improve education, what do we do about the tax climate, and how do we reduce crime. I, I know there was this big meeting and these announcements about, hey, we, we've got this this new programs to try to like deal with violent crime we'll break that down probably tomorrow and i i don't mean to be a negative nelly about it but again a lot of that sounds like more of the same old same old yada 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 type of stuff for those of you keeping track of those things um marquette which won the Big C- Big Ten, Big Ten, the Big East regular season championship after being pick- predicted to pick ninth. Um, Marquette just played in the quarterfinals of the Big East tournament, and um, they were actually getting blown out of the gym in the first half. They were behind by 13 points, and they've come back, and they just won 72-70 to 70 over St. John's in, in overtime. Um, just a... Uh, an amazing comeback in the second half, and then they ended up holding on to win. So Marquette advances to the semifinals tomorrow as what's really turned into a, a magic season continues to roll on. The NCAA tournament bids are going to be coming out on Sunday, and the prediction is that, well, they're going to get either a two or a three seed, kind of depending on what happens. But it's it's a magical season, and I, I think if Marquette's coach, Shaka Smart isn't isn't the coach of the year. I think there's going to be some explaining to be done because you take a team that's predicted to finish ninth and you you have all the success that they're having. It it's I, I think it would be very difficult to deny him coach of the year. There's a couple other worthy candidates, but Marquette wins a kind of a nail biter against St. John's um, in the Big East tournament. The flip side, of course, is the UW men's basketball team, which. 
uh, really had a very, very disappointing season. And they, I think a lot of people thought that they were kind of a bubble team to make it to the NCAA tournament, and they probably needed a couple wins in the Big Ten tournament. I think, as everybody knows by now, they lost to Ohio State last night, and I think the smart money suggests that they're not going to get an NCAA tournament bid and more likely will be heading to the uh, NIT. The big question is for Wisconsin, I think, whether their coach, Greg Gard, whether or not um, he's going to be coaching them next year. One of the things that's happened is the men's basketball team at Wisconsin has been on a decline over the last several years. And I guess the question becomes, you know, sometimes – even if you've got the greatest coach in the world, it's time to end up you know, making changes. So that's going to be the issue. You know, um, Will Greg Gard be back? But it appears doubtful that Wisconsin's going to get a bid to the NCAA tournament. Marquette, on the other hand, their Big East tournament continues with a 72-70 win, and uh, they'll play tomorrow. Speaking of, of coaches, we talked about this the other day, and it's – it's one of these stories where I just some, I shake my head when you have political correctness in this fashion. Uh, Texas Tech's men's basketball coach was a guy named Mark Adams. And last year, Mark Adams came in. It was his first year at Texas Tech, and he had great success, took the team to the Sweet 16, did very, very well. This year, they didn't get off to a very good start, and I don't think they're going to make the NCAA tournament. Well, Mark Adams has resigned slash been pushed out at Texas Tech. And it's interesting to me how this all happened. Apparently, Mark Adams was counseling one of the basketball players. And they, they haven't said which basketball player this was, and they haven't said what his race was, but I assume that it was a black player. That's just my assumption. But anyhow, the point that Mark Adams was making in talking to this player, and coaches, you know... Uh, when you're a college or a high school basketball coach, you, you obviously you want to win, right? There's there's no question about that. And at the end of the day, you're going to be judged by you know how are you able to win. But one of the other jobs that you have is to try to build character and try to prepare young people for life. I, I think almost every person that's been involved in coaching even at the collegiate level, would tell you that that's one of the goals. So apparently what happens is about a week ago, Adams is in a session with one of these players who was resistant to coaching. I think that would be a fair way to describe it. And the point Adams is trying to make to the player is, is, look, all through life, we're all going to have people that we have to answer to, and he's trying to encourage him to be coachable. He's trying to encourage him to say, "Hey, look, you you need to you need to you need to listen to me. You need to listen to the coaching staff because we all have this is life. You know, we all we're all we all have bosses. We all have people we report to. And Adams, who is a very religious guy, in trying to make this point, he cites a biblical passage that essentially says, "We we are all servants." And, you know, we all serve someone. And, yes, you know, we all have this obligation to serve. And, you know, the Bible teaches us that if we're a servant, we should be a great servant. And if we're a master, we should be a great master because we're all, we're, we're all servants of the Lord. That, that's the point. And he cites this basketball. He cites this particular scripture reading. So the kid comes out of it and apparently tells somebody, well, I, I felt uncomfortable because, you know, he, he used a reference to servants. 
And I think he did say servants. The original biblical reference said slaves, but he uses the reference to servants. So I, I felt uncomfortable. And then, of course, th- this whole thing goes nuclear. Oh, you had a, a person of color. And in trying to make this point that we all we need to listen and we need to follow instructions and we need to you know, f- do what we're told and things like that. It's like, well, since he used the reference to servants, Oh, and the kid was you know, presumably black. Oh, this is terrible. It's a reference to slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly, the, the coach, he, he explained, you know, when this became a controversy, he explained, you know, what he'd said, but he wasn't willing to apologize. He said, I don't think I said anything wrong. Well, if, if I will tell you this. If Texas, if Texas Tech was heading back to the NCAA tournament and was positioned to be a Sweet 16 team again, I'm not sure this would have been the controversy it was, but it became very controversial in part because they weren't winning as much this year, and in any event, he has been forced out, meaning, I guess to me, any of, any of these youth coaches out there, I mean, if you're going to use biblical references, I guess you got to be really, really careful because you never know what's going to be offensive to some kid and then what might end up costing you your job. Just saying. Okay, when we come back, I want to talk about this controversy involving Walgreens. Stick around. number of people are asking, what, what's next for Marquette? If you're just tuning in, Marquette is playing in the Big East Tournament. And they survived an overtime game against St. John's. They won 72-70 to in the quarterfinals. They advanced to the semifinals, which are going to be played 5.30 tomorrow evening. You can hear the game on our sister station, um, 94.5 ESPN. Uh, they will play the winner of Providence UConn. And, um, you know, both are both are good teams. The Big East is very, very competitive. And the the Marquette, I think one of the great things as a fan this year is they figured out they figured out ways in the last two thirds of the season to win close games. And they've been doing that on a regular basis. And the the cool thing about this Marquette team to me is that the it, it really is a situation where the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts i mean some teams have like one or two superstars and and i don't i don't know that marquette has any real superstars but they've got a number of really very good players and they play really well as a team and that's pretty cool all right i want to talk about walgreens if you haven't been following this story well let's let us go back to last year when the supreme court struck down roe versus wade which had said that limits on a woman's right to an abortion in general were unconstitutional. You, you could not do that. Well, okay, the Supreme Court reversed that. And so now it is a matter of, of state law. And different states have different laws with regard to that. Um, in states like California and Illinois and North Carolina, it's pretty much, you know, anything goes. Very, very few restrictions. In Wisconsin, there is an 18, what, 49 law that bans abortions. And there's currently litigation that's going on now. And this is playing, of course, a role in the upcoming Supreme Court race that we'll talk more about as we get closer to the election date. But th- this is, as it stands right now, 
uh, there are no abortions that are performed in the state of Wisconsin. That doesn't mean that women who become pregnant in Wisconsin don't have abortions. What it means is that they travel to Illinois, or depending where they are on the state, they travel to Minnesota, and they have the abortions performed, but they have to travel to do it. The abortions do not occur right now in the state of Wisconsin. There is then an issue. Um, one of the Besides the surgical procedures of abortion, there is the, the so-called you know, abortion pill, which is used as well. And you know, it could be prescribed or you know, whatever. Walgreens that you know, provides you know, these, the abortion pills, right? They, they, they do that. Walgreens has announced that it is not going to sell the, the so-called abortion pill in various states there's 21 states where they say that hey um abortions are illegal so for these various states where walgreens is concerned that by providing the abortion pill they would be in violation of the law of the state what they've said is that they're um they're they're not going to sell and they're not going to distribute the abortion pill. It's something called MIFE, Mifepristone, I think is how you pronounce it. It's a highly regulated, it's the first drug taken in a two-drug reg- regimen for medication abortions. So Walgreens says, for the states that do not allow abortions, we are not going to sell this drug in those states. Now, this has generated just a lot of controversy. As I mentioned yesterday, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who desperately, desperately wants to be the president of the United States, and if Joe Biden does not run for re-election, Gavin Newsom, he, he's, he's going to jump in. He, there's no question about it. He is going to run. Now, Gavin Newsom said yesterday, well, I am appalled that Walgreens would do this, even though Walgreens is going to continue to distribute this drug in California. So this has no impact at all on people who live in California. But Newsom says, what I'm going to do, I am going to punish Walgreens. So what we're going to do is we are going to cancel. We're not going to do business with Walgreens anymore. So California has just suspended a $54 million contract that they have with Walgreens over Walgreens' decision not to distribute this particular drug in these various states. California will not stand by as corporations cave to extremists and cut off critical access to reproductive care and freedom, said Gavin Newsom, saying we're going to leverage our market power to defend the right to choose. So they're going to cancel or suspend these contracts between California and Walgreens, which... You know, what that's going to ultimately mean is very much up in the air because, you know, I I assume that everybody in California who gets drugs through Walgreens and it's sponsored or underwritten by the state, now they're going to have to make alternative arrangements. And who knows what the cost is that going to be? And and who knows whether what he's doing is, is even legal in the first place? But this is the idea. I want to punish Walgreens for taking the position that, gee, it might not be legal for us to provide this drug in some of these states. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I don't care where you are on on the abortion issue, 
But in this particular case, it strikes me as being impossible to view Walgreens as the bad guy. Walgreens is saying, look, you know, there are questions whether or not we can legally dispense this particular drug, which is used for abortions in states where it is illegal to perform abortions. So as a result, we're we're not getting involved in this. I don't see how Walgreens could take any other position. And for them to be, quote unquote, punished by people like Gavin Newsom, who are doing nothing, in my opinion, but trying to seek publicity, is completely and totally wrong. If Walgreens was saying, we're not going to distribute this particular drug in California where it's legal, that's a completely different story. But how can or why should Walgreens be put under this sort of, hey, we're going to cancel contracts because... You want to, I don't know, not violate the law in the state of Wisconsin, if that is the law in the state of Wisconsin. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. I love it when I get texts to start like this. This is completely inappropriate to be on the air. Well, we'll decide. And the texture says, I realize that, but I just have to say, sometimes I wish California would fall right into the ocean. Well, I don't wish California would fall right into the ocean, but but the the arrogance that you see that, that comes out of this, and with some of these opportunist politicians, I mean, here, here's what Walgreens says about this. They say, look, we will dispense the abortion pill, this medication, consistent with federal and state laws. Providing legally approved medications to patients is what pharmacies do and is rooted in our commitment to the communities in which we operate. And so they go on to say, look, once once we're told by a, a particular state that it's legal to dispense this medication, the abortion pill, in the state, we're, we're happy to do it. But until we are told that it's legal to do it, no, you know, we're, we're not going to violate state law. And Governor Gavin Newsom, we, we appreciate that you think that this should be how it is. And because abortion is legal with very few restrictions in California, yeah, we're going to serve California. The, these, the drug will be available there. But, you know, you're going to punish us and cancel our contracts with the state of California because we are concerned that we do not have the ability to legally distribute this drug in Wisconsin for the sake of argument. Here's one of our texts. Walgreens is prudent in their action, and Newsom is taking a calculated risk that using California as a pawn will pay off for him with national Democratic support if he runs for president. I think this is contemporary politics as usual, with his constituents being sacrificial lambs. Yet you do kind of wonder, you know, how does this all play out with what about all the people in California who now are used to going to Walgreens to get various drugs that might be underwritten or paid for through stuff that they do through the state of California. So now they're not going to be able to go to Walgreens anymore. Well, Walgreens still isn't going to be distributing the abortion pill in states where it's illegal to do so. So all you've done, talk about virtue signaling, all you've done is mess over your own constituents for your own political purposes. Way to go, Gavin. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Have you noticed something about the, the weather reports? And that, that something is 
and and maybe maybe I'm misreading this, but my one of the things that I the sense I am getting is that people are not freaking out based on the the, the most current weather forecast. Now now hear me out. There you know there's winter storm warnings that are in effect, and it, it looks like. You know, the, the area is going to get kind of whooped. And I think there's a consistency of this. Whoomp, that's one of the, the technical meteorological, meteorological terms that you get. But you, we have a situation where, um, you know, what, what's happened is it's going to start snowing this evening. And it's going to snow heavily this evening and overnight. And it'll still be snowing tomorrow morning. And then it's going to slow down. And it should be at least the first round of snow should be over by early afternoon. And then some other snow off and on over the course of the weekend. The estimates are that, you know, we could in certain areas of our listing area be looking at you know a downfall a snowfall of, of six or inches or more of snow which is a lot of snow hazardous travel conditions are likely low visibility from heavy snowfall and and they're saying hey you know from tonight around six o'clock until 10 a.m tomorrow you know travel might be a little bit difficult and, and we're going to get a lot of snow all right that that's i that's the case What's interesting to me is, and maybe, again, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, I, I don't see all the news reports about people rushing out to the hardware stores to, you know, buy up the snow blowers and buy up the snow shovels and buy up the, the salt. Um, I, I don't see people rushing to the grocery stores to buy every gallon of milk that they can possibly find, whereas if this had been... December or late November and we were getting the same sort of forecast I I guarantee you that there would be lines out the door because this is what happens every November but now that it's March I I think that we're I don't know just treating this in a much kind of different way our number is 855-616-1620 just one segment on this but what is it why are we, and I'm not saying not concerned, because obviously when you're going to get a significant snowfall, that's, that's the case, but, but why, why aren't people lining up and buying every loaf of bread they can find and, and buying every gallon of milk that they can possibly find, knowing that we're going to get hit with six-plus inches of snow, whereas I do firmly believe that a couple months ago, if that's the case, that would have been precisely what we would see happen. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm just kind of, you know, curious uh, about this. Um, Jeff, I think part of it is that we made it through other snowfalls, and the fact that it's not supposed to be as cold as it is in December, actually it's supposed to be warm, so I don't anticipate it's going to stick around, and it should melt out relatively quickly, even after it stops snowing. Deb in West Dallas says, hey, Jeff, um, you haven't been to the grocery store today, but um, I have, and at least where I went, it's the end of the world again at the grocery store. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Well, it's interesting to me, if if that is really the case, you you do want to say, I mean, first of all, because I'm generally, I I want to applaud people for taking a a reasoned approach to this, because at least in my opinion, our first texter is is absolutely right. But look, 
a six to eight inch snowfall or nine inches or whatever it's going to be is significant. At the same time, the truth of the matter is it's not like it's going to be a five day blizzard. It's not like it's going to be 20 degrees below zero. It's not like the roads aren't going to be cleared. Now, that's not saying that at the height of the snowstorm at 10 or 11 o'clock at night that you, you might want to stay home and avoid traveling if you possibly can. But the truth is that anybody who wants to get anywhere they need to go tomorrow afternoon or evening is probably going to be able to do that because we do snow well. And it's not like you're not going to be able to get out. Um, on, on Saturday, it's not like you're not going to be able to get to the grocery store. 855-616-1620. James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. How you doing there, Jeff? I think, Good. I think we're all uh, sensitized now. We're winterized. Uh, you know, like you just said, in November or December, it would be like Shock City, like you get in a car and you that winter storm shock of uh, four or eight inches or whatever it is. Now we're we're more sensitized to the winter here coming more towards spring here, and it's coming towards the weekend, and it's going to be a long time. If we get our groceries now, uh, we can all uh, go and hibernate for the whole weekend there uh, with, with a variety of the other things that are coming on TV here and everything else. Well, okay. Well, thanks for the call, James. Look, I mean, I, I, I understand if you're thinking, okay, well, I don't want to go out and get stuff, but, you know, this this. I guess one of the things I've always commented on is that the panic that seems to ensue, you know, whenever we get a report of a snowstorm, and particularly early in the season, oh, this is going to be the major first big snowfall of the year, and and everybody is is rushing to the stores and buying everything they possibly can, and you, you almost want to just say to folks, look, that this isn't 1950, you know, and we we do snow so well in Wisconsin in general and in southeastern Wisconsin in particular. And I understand that sometimes if you live on an alley in a busy street at an alley and maybe the alley doesn't get plowed out as quickly as you want or your satisfaction, but the truth is, you know, we've I can remember real monster blizzards, for example. I mean, really, truly blizzards. And, and people are out and they're going the roadways the next day and stores are open. It's not like you're going to be snowed in for a month. And in this particular case, we're, we're in the middle of March. The temperatures are going to be in the 30s pretty much every day from now on. So, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of snow. And, yes, it might be sloppy. And I'm certainly not encouraging people to be irresponsible when they're out and about. But but it's like it's it's March. There's no reason to stock up for two weeks because I guarantee you you're going to be able to get to the store. Paul in Mount Pleasant. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? I appreciate uh, letting me in today. Um, my thought process is over the last two years, it seems like every time you turn around, the weather broadcasters are trying to scare everybody. 800 million people affected by the storm this weekend. And then three out of four times, they're wrong. They predict eight, yeah. ten inches, and we get nothing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and thanks to call, Paul. I mean, you, you do have that. Now, in this particular case, and, and I... You know, I, I do want to say, I mean, I think I think the weather forecasters and, and you can for this year, for example, I think the reports have been in general pretty, pretty accurate. The timing might be a little bit off. But look, there, there's no doubt we're going to get snow. It, it's, it's going to snow 
this evening. It's going to snow overnight. Um, the commute tomorrow is probably going to be tricky. I mean, I got a notice from my dentist's office. They didn't have a dental appointment, but saying that in anticipation of that, they're they're closing their office on Friday because you know they don't want their employees to have to travel. And that and again, I, I understand it makes sense in that regard. What doesn't make sense to me is that the absolute panic that we have sometimes and. At least my sense, although some of you are texting in and disagreeing with this, my, my sense is that we're, we're getting more conditioned for this. Jeff, my wife just left the Woodmans in Waukesha and said it was crazy busy to the point that she just walked out. Another texter said that they were at the uh, Costco in Madison, couldn't even find a place to park. Um, that, that's that's it. Um Jeff, the reason people freak out at the grocery store is because you say we're going to get a lot of snow when a lot a lot is only is over 12 inches. Well, no, look, four, five, six, nine, ten inches of snow is a lot of snow. That that's I don't. That's not why people freak out. People freak out because they think, oh my gosh, you know, even a even a moderate amount of snow, we're not going to be able to function in. And I just. I, I kind of reject that. Um, Jeff, I think the best time to go shopping is the day after the storm. Generally, nobody is at the stores. People should already have a minimum of two weeks of food stored. Well, the problem with going the day after the storm is a lot of times there's nothing in there because the stores have been completely picked over by people thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to get three blocks down the road to get to the, the pick and save or the whatever, wherever the, or Sendex or whatever, when the truth is, <clears throat> like I say, we, we do snow really, really well. Far be it from me to channel Aaron Rodgers, who by all reports is getting closer to, you know, exiting Wisconsin, heading for New York. And and my response to that is, is good. I I wish him, I wish him well. I think it's time for a change of scenery, but if I could channel him for a minute, I think my general reaction is when we get these forecasts, you want to be careful, but what's that five letter word? Oh yeah. R E L A X. Jeff, when we lived in Georgia, anytime there was a possibility of a storm that was coming, people would freak out and there'd be no milk, bread, and eggs in the stores. I always thought it was funny. Jeff, as my wife and I say, we have food, firewood, and booze. Let it snow. Jeff, late last week, western Michigan was supposed to get 10 to 18 inches. We did not get one flake of snow or one drop of rain. I don't trust any forecast. Do love your show, though. Thanks. It's Dave in Holland, Michigan. Jeff, just tell people to leave for work a few minutes earlier and drive slower and forget going to the grocery store. Go after the storm and just drive a little bit slower. Yep. Jeff, I think calling it a storm every time we get snow is what freaks people out. It's winter in Wisconsin. It's going to snow. It's when you have below zero conditions with high wind and snow and ice that it should be a storm. Otherwise, it's just called winter weather in Wisconsin, or I would argue maybe it's called Tuesday in Wisconsin. Jeff, I was just at Piggly Wiggly. It was quiet. People there were not freaking out. Well, yeah, I think hopefully that that is the case. Um, Yeah, that that is the case. All right. Man, you want to talk about just almost felony dumb this is the story. The story comes from the NBA, the world of sports, but it's one of these sort of bigger stories. Um, ja Morant is 
a superstar player for the Memphis Grizzlies. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, this guy, he just, in the NCAA tournament, he just lit up Marquette. Just the last time, I think they were two years ago, two or three years ago in the, in the NCAA. Just completely lit him up. He's now all-star. He plays for Memphis. And, you know, he's, I, I think, you know, Memphis is doing pretty well this year. And it's it's largely because of him. So you've got this all-star point guard Young guy, he's got the future. You know, future is really, really bright. I mean, this is is one of those situations. Well, he's been he's been off. He's been suspended for a couple games, and he's going to miss at least the next four games. Why? Because early Saturday morning, he and they must have been playing in Denver or something. He goes to a Colorado nightclub called Shotgun Willie's. All right, so what, what do we always say? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 a.m.? Well, I mean, here's another one of these lessons. Nothing good happens outside Shotgun Willie's in Colorado at, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Because apparently what he decides to do is he poses for an Instagram Live video holding a handgun, or at least what appears to be a handgun. And so this goes out on Instagram, and of course there is this immediate sort of reaction that comes in going, okay, you've got this NBA player, he's out at this nightclub and late at night, and he, he's waving a gun around. Okay, what, what, what possibly good can come of this? And so, you know, what ends up happening is the authorities investigate. The police have decided they're, they're not going to issue any charges because he didn't shoot anybody. Uh, nobody had complained about this. The only reason this is a controversy is because, well, I mean, first he did it, I guess. But secondly, that the idiot decided to, you know, pose for photographs doing this. And now the NBA is investigating it, um, not from the perspective of was there a crime committed, but rather how does this fit in with their, you know, with, with their standards and practices. Because the last thing NBA, the NBA wants to do is have one of its young superstars who is, you know, going to be the, the face of the NBA moving forward and, and here you know he's he's at this you know nightclub after late at night you know waving around a gun so he's um, going to be he has been suspended he didn't play in the last two games he's going to be suspended for the next four games he's issued an apology saying that he is learning better methods of dealing with stress and my overall well-being which Okay, I guess that's a nice way of saying, I was a complete and total idiot. I don't know what I was thinking. You know, the organization doesn't call it a suspension. They're just saying he's taking time away from the team. But I guess the bottom line of all this is, you know, you have these guys who have the world by the tail. Just the world by the tail. The future is bright. They're going to make more money than most of us will ever see in our lifetime. And they're going to do it in a couple years by playing a game. And and yet they don't have the impulse control of a fruit fly. And they end up, I don't know, posing with guns outside of nightclubs and things like that. You know, this is one where if, if I were Memphis, 
I think earlier on I would assign people to, hey, just go with these guys. During the basketball season, we can't control what they do in the off season. but during the basketball season, yeah, if you want to go out to a nightclub, that's fine, but you're taking one of our security guys along with us because maybe if you can't figure out that it's not a good idea to go waving a gun around, um, maybe the security guy can help convince you why that's not a good idea. So once again, nothing good happens outside strip clubs at 2 in the morning and toting guns outside shotgun willies at 2 in the morning. Not a good idea either. Just ask Ja Morant. Yeah, it's, it's why it was saying it's a, it's yet another bad day on the stock market. It's been February was a bad month and March has been a bad month. Uh, it's it is interesting to me. And Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management, I talked about this a week or two ago during WTMJ conversations. Uh, for those of you keeping track at home, the Nasdaq right now is down two hundred and eleven points. That's a one point eight percent drop. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 483 points, and that's continuing. Um, they had one big day last week, but otherwise, it's been it's been a rocky February and it's been a, a rocky March. What what's happening? And it is it's just it's kind of counterintuitive. The 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 reason today is is in the tank again is because there was another report that came out. Um, jobless claims, you know, people applying for unemployment, um, they, they said that um, that that was the, the number of people who were applying for unemployment was was low, which you would think would be a good thing. People are, are working. But the concern is that the labor market is still strong. And that is that people are, are hiring and they're working and they're making money and they're spending money. Now, you would think, hey, that's a good thing for the economy. We want people to work, and we want jobless claims to be low, and we we want people to be buying things because that means you need to make things and all. Well, the problem with that is we're in a period right now where you're having inflation, and the Federal Reserve is trying to tame inflation. And the only way they have to tame inflation, the principal way they have, I guess they've got a couple things, but what they their principal way is they increase the interest rates. The idea being we will raise interest rates so it will become more expensive to borrow money. So what that means is um, if, if your interest rates on your credit cards, and I mean what the Federal Reserve doesn't, doesn't directly affect your, your credit cards, but it does indirectly. So if the amount of money that a company has to borrow to expand, well, if that goes up, well, because they have to pay more to borrow that money, well, maybe they're less likely to a- expand because so, so they won't borrow the money. Um, if somebody, a, a person on a, on a close level like the credit card thing, maybe people will be less inclined to buy stuff if the interest rates on their credit card goes up. Maybe you're less inclined to buy a house if the interest rates all have, have gone up, your mortgage rates have gone up. So the idea is by increasing the interest, and this is the most simple form of this way to describe it, but by increasing the interest rates, you make it more expensive to get money, so you cause people to slow down their, their spending. You cause businesses to slow down the growth. Now, again, that's counterintuitive because you think, hey, this is good. We want the economy to be humming along. We want people to be working. We want people to be spending money. But... 
when these reports come in saying that people are working and people are spending money, it freaks the Federal Reserve out, and then they start talking about increasing rates more and more, which spook investors because they're saying, well, you know, if they keep raising the rates, what's going to happen is you're, you're going to be looking at a recession. So that that's that's what's going on. And again, it's frustrating when you have what otherwise you would interpret to be really good economic news, but yet the stock market is <laughs> it keeps tanking day after day, but it's all because of the Federal Reserve and inflation. And I don't think anybody understands where this all ends. Okay, something else that I don't think anybody understands where it all ends, and I, I want to have this conversation with you. All right. Who needs who more? Does Donald Trump need Fox News more, or does Fox News need Donald Trump more? Now, let me kind of back into this. Everybody who follows politics is aware of this lawsuit that was filed by Dominion Voting Machines against Fox News. Um, After the 2020 election, in order to kind of push this, the election was stolen narrative. You had people close to Trump, like crazy lawyer Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, who went out there touting these ideas that, oh, these voting machines were all messed up. And and people who voted for Trump, the, the vote was actually recorded as a vote for Biden. Or all these people who voted for Trump, it didn't get recorded. And, and they went talking about these Dominion voting machines. That that. That whole thing was crazy town. I mean, there was never any validity to it. And so Dominion has now sued Fox News saying, hey, they, they injured us and they knew that they were touting the, these false theories, not by just having Rudy Giuliani on and Sidney Powell on who did it, but also their various hosts were, you know, putting out these claims. And now it is, of course, coming out with emails and depositions that a lot of the hosts at Fox News, they, they knew that they were at least, whether they knew or not, they were very uncomfortable spreading the, these different theories because despite what they might be saying on the air, they, they harbored doubts. They thought a lot of this stuff was crazy. Um, what's also coming out in depositions and things of the like is that there's been uncom- a lot of the hosts are were personally and privately very uncomfortable with a lot of the stuff that Trump was doing. What's happened since then is there's kind of been a break between Fox and Trump. For the longest time, Fox News, that's where Donald Trump went all the time. That's how he spoke to audiences, etc., etc. Et but uh, Fox has been backing off on this. Trump doesn't appear on Fox News anywhere near as much as he used to. Matter of fact, um, what's actually been going on is if you watch Fox, you'll see that, for example, Ron DeSantis has kind of been the, the favored son. Fox, uh, Trump has attacked Rupert Murdoch, who is the chairman of Fox. He's launched attacks against Fox, and Fox appears to be responding by not ignoring Trump because they did carry that two-hour speech he gave at CPAC, but by marginalizing him. And it appears that that's going to continue. It's not going to be, Fox is not going to be the place that like he could go to like he did in 2015 and 16 and 17 and 18. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, this is kind of a chicken and the egg question. 
if it is true, and I think it is, that Fox is backing away from Donald Trump, my question is, who needs who more? Does Fox need Trump more than Trump needs Fox or vice versa? I think there's a clear answer to this, but I'm curious as to what you think. 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. One of our uh, one of our texters says, "Well, you know, how about bashing Biden for a while?" And I said, "Yeah, I don't I don't get accused of being soft on Biden very often." I but I think this is is interesting. Washington Post has a big story headlines inside the simmering feud between Donald Trump and Fox News, and and what they're they're saying is that uh, you know Trump has gone out of his way to try to you know attack Rupert Murdoch calling him a group of MAGA-hating globalist rhinos who is aiding and abetting the destruction of America. Donald Trump Jr. is complaining he's not been invited on the network for six months, accused Fox leaders last week of harboring an American last war forever. Um, other allies like Stephen K. Bannon have shredded the network in public. And I think, you know, one of the things is, especially in response to a lot of the, the grief that Fox is taking over this Dominion lawsuit and stuff, one of the things they're doing is they're backing off on Trump. And as a result of that, Ron DeSantis is getting more attention, and Trump is clearly upset about that. And I guess my question is, if that, in fact, continues, who needs who more? Does Fox need Trump more, or does Trump need Fox more? I think the answer is is pretty clear. I'll share it with you, but let me hear some a couple of texts. Jeff, clearly Trump needs Fox to help keep him relevant. They have a million other things to report on, and I hope they do just that. Jeff, Fox does not need Trump, but CNN does and MSNBC does. Check the ratings. Well, that that's actually true. Once once the boogeyman, which is what people on CNN and uh, MSNBC view Trump as, once he left the public stage to the extent, or at least was not as featured as prominently, their their ratings went into the tank. Yeah, Fox News, on the other hand, continues to grow ratings. Yeah, I, I see, I think this is an easy one, and I think this is a no-brainer. I think Trump needs Fox much, much more than Fox needs Trump because Fox is succeeding, again, regardless of whether they, they're featuring Trump or not. But Trump... You know, he's got a limited plate number of places he can go to still stay relevant. Let's talk to Douglas in Campbellsport. Douglas, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, sir. Thanks for your what, time. What do you think? Yes. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, he seems to be uh, derogative of all our Republican candidates as in the last election. Mm-hmm. With yep. with uh, um, oh, how do I explain this? No, I got it, Douglas. Hey, thanks for the call, Douglas. No, I get it. I I understand. No, I mean Trump. I mean Trump is is searching for uh, one of the stories I was saying is he's trying to search for a nasty nickname for Ron DeSantis that he can figure out how how to make stick. You know, first it was Ron DeSantis, and then it was. 
Yeah, I wouldn't call him a meatball, but, you know, some other people might, you know, all, all these different things. But he's clearly, like, trying to struggle for that sort of derogatory name. And you know it has to frost him that DeSantis is starting to get more coverage on Fox News, which continues to be, you know, one of the highest rated, certainly the highest rated, you know, program network on cable and a lot of times on regular TV as as well. Jeff Fox. Trump needs Fox because no other channel will give him a fair break and even let him talk. That that very might well might be. But then, of course, the question becomes, you know, what what do you think the response is going to be when you decide that you want to make Trump the, the, the enemy? One of the things that goes back to this feud as well is remember on election night in 2020, what ended up happening was that uh, – Fox was the first state was the first one to call Arizona for Biden. And um, that flew I mean, Trump went into a tizzy. I was going to use another word, but I don't think the word that was coming to mind, I can say on the radio, went into a tizzy about that. And you had Trump people that were calling people at Fox saying they can't call Arizona for Biden. You know, they have to they have to pull that back or hold it or whatever. And, you know, and the folks at Fox and there was a lot of consternation. Oh, well, Trump's really upset about this. But the folks at Fox were saying, well, what 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 do you mean? I mean, we're this is what our standards are. This is our, you know. He's going to lose Arizona. That's just the reality. And how can we not make that call? So they ended up making the call. And ever since then, Trump has been extremely upset with them. Oh, and by the way, it was the right call. Trump lost Arizona. So it's not like they made the call and ended up being wrong. They made the call. They were the first people to make the call. And they ended up getting it right. And that's always, um, you know, that's always uh, create an issue. Jeff, CNN and MSNBC's ratings are a non-argument. It's only older people watching network news. Young people, that is Democrats, get their news from the Internet. Well, I guess, I, I, I don't know. The, the, point is, uh, the point is ratings are a huge factor, and that's how advertising rates are set light and things like that. But from the perspective of Trump, who needs to keep himself in the public eye, how you do that without being the darling of Fox News, I think, is very, very difficult. And I, I think that's, a, that's one of the many reasons why I, I just I don't think Trump is going to be anywhere near as much of a player moving forward as he was in the past. But, you know, um, for the fact that he's not getting the attention that he was used to getting, it's got to be incredibly frustrating. And, yes, I understand there's other places to go, and you can go to Newsmax or things like that, but the fact is that just doesn't have the clout that Fox does. And I guess to me, like I said earlier, it's not a chicken and the egg thing. be interesting to watch this out, watch this out, but um, in the feud between Donald Trump and Fox News, again, I think – I think Trump, at the end of the day, needs Fox a lot more than Fox needs Trump. And I'm going to be fascinated to see how this plays out over the course of the next several months.